Welcome to Matthew's World of Wine and Drink, an educational podcast dedicated to teaching you all about the wines of the world, the different grape varieties, the different regions, and the history and culture of wine. I've been recently revisiting um, wine regions, which I'd explored in my podcast previously, but going deeper into them, so Loire Valley and Bordeaux, um, two important French regions, but now the attention turns to California, so there's going to be a series of episodes in this podcast about California, going really deep into the state and its wines. Um, I do live in California, so hopefully I can provide some insights into the state and the the wide range of wines and styles of wine being made in California, which are quite different from the monolithic image I think that some people have of California only producing big, bold, full wines. And in this episode, to kick off, we're going to start with Napa Valley and really uh, just focus on that region, an extremely famous region, the, the one that really drew international attention to California, though the history of California goes way back beyond the 1970s when Napa Valley became famous. And Napa Valley is a very small region, so only a, um, a small a snapshot of California, so it's important not to think that all California is like Napa Valley or vice versa. It's very much its own thing, but still very influential and important on the rest of California and indeed on the world, particularly for Cabernet Sauvignon, but also for marketing. Napa Valley is one of the prime leaders in how to market uh, the wines and the, and the region and how to sell them, because... Napa attracts so much attention and so much money and so much wealth, despite being so small. So let's start by looking at the history of Napa Valley, which goes back to the 1830s in terms of winemaking. And Napa's a little bit different from um, other regions in California, like Sonoma and Paso Robles, etc., in that the influence isn't uh, Spanish and it's not the missionaries who begin to make wine in Napa. The first person uh, reputed to plant uh, grapes in Napa Valley was George Yont, and that was in 1838 when he was granted land by General Vallejo, whose family he had married into. Uh, General Vallejo is a very important figure in the early days of California, owning much of the land that is now Sonoma and Napa, because he had so much he didn't know what to do with it, and granting it to um, different owners, many of whom started to make wine, and George Yont was one of those. And the town of Yontville, where he is buried, is named after him, and that's in the heart of Napa Valley. But in terms of um, professional wine production, it wasn't really until the late 1850s, early 1860s that winemaking got going. Uh, So Charles Krug is the oldest existing winemaker in Napa Valley, dating back to 1861. There's also uh, another winemaker there who's famous called Jakob Schramm. So German immigration, very important to Napa Valley. And Schramm was um, the winemaker that Robert Louis Stevenson met in the 1880s when he was on his honeymoon in Napa Valley and he went wine tasting and met Jakob Schramm and talked about the wines in his book The Silverado Squatters. And the sparkling wine producer Schramsberg is now located on the site that Jakob Schramm used to make wine in the 1860s up until the 1880s and beyond in St. Helena. And when Robert Louis Stevenson was writing about Napa Valley, uh, the area was really becoming uh, quite successful and well-known. That was because in part of phylloxera in Europe. The French wines were not as widely available as they once were because phylloxera was affecting them so badly. Drinkers in the UK would look to places like California as a replacement because phylloxera had not hit at that point. And so um, when Robert Lucifson talked to Jagostram and tasted his wines, those wines were available in the UK. So California was getting some international attention. But unfortunately, when phylloxera hit California in the 1890s, that was that point that France was getting back on its feet. So drinkers very quickly turned back to France and kind of forgot about California. 
and then there was prohibition which um, in the 1920s which of course led to um, complete uh, meltdown in the wine industry and most importantly not only was wine not being produced the grapes which were being grown were being sent to the east coast so people could make wine at home and that led to plantings of Alicante Boucher because it has a deep colour pretty low quality and the grapes have been transported by train across the um, United States could last take several days or even weeks before it found its way uh, to its destination which would mean the grapes were pretty oxidized and rotted so the reputation of California wine was extremely low if any was being made at all so by the t- end of the Second World War several generations of wine knowledge had been lost and there were just a handful of producers in Napa and they formed the Napa Valley Vintners where I think there were just about 12 producers in in that uh, association so very little wine being made in Napa Valley but in the 1950s and 1960s there was a resurgence in winemaking and grape growing and people remembered that Napa had had a good reputation back in the 19th century and saw it as an ideal place to really focus on quality production and the important figure here was um, Andrei Shelyshev uh, a Russian emigre who came from France after the Second World War uh, saw Napa Valley as a quality location and um, really talked to the winemakers who were there and influenced them and taught them how to make wine because even basics like how to get a wine uh, fully fermented wasn't really known. So he's an extremely important figure, encouraged people to plant Cabernet Sauvignon in Napa Valley because he saw it as ideal and also taught producers how to age a wine in oak barrel. And so this drive towards quality was being recognised by the late 60s, early 1970s, which is why Stephen Spurrier organised a tasting in Paris to compare the wines of California to those of France. And it was designed to be an informal tasting, just to see how those wines stood up. There was no, no kind of uh, competition, it's just, uh, let's just compare. But there was one journalist there uh, from Time magazine, who recorded the victory, as it were, of California wines over the French wines, so the Cabernet Sauvignon, mainly from Napa Valley against Bordeaux, and the Chardonnay, again mainly from Napa Valley against Burgundy. And in both cases, wines from Napa Valley uh, came top, and this became known as the Judgment of Paris, and really uh, drew attention to the wines of California, and in particular Napa Valley. And that is, of course, why Napa has such renown, because it was the first region to gain that international attention. But it hasn't been all smooth sailing since then. The 1980s were difficult years, some difficult vintages. Uh, Phylloxera hit Napa again because the wrong rootstock was being used. And that was AXL1, which isn't actually very tolerant to Phylloxera, and so, or very resistant to Phylloxera. So um, that really hit in the 1980s. But once they recovered from Phylloxera and replanted and planted to the correct rootstock, which is mainly uh, St. George, things really picked up pretty quickly with a lot of producers coming in. By the late 1980s, there's about 150 producers in Napa Valley. Now there's well over 500, so huge growth over the last 30 years. The effect of Robert Parker was extremely important with the so-called Parkerization of wines, which I think particularly hit Napa because the wines were very well favoured by Robert Parker, and a lot of the producers coming in were really chasing the points that he gave wines, so really big, full-bodied, high-alcohol styles. That really begins in the mid-1990s. Somewhere between 1996 and 1998, there becomes a homogenization of style, which is, I think, slowly changing. Wines are getting a bit lower in alcohol, so that alcohol was coming from the long hand time, really leaving the grapes on the vine for a long time to build up sugars, and I think now there's a more uh, moderate picking. The sugar's not built up so much, and also maybe a trend to using less new oak as well. 
those big full-bodied Parkerized styles of wine definitely still exist, but I do think there's generally more balance to Napa Valley. But of course, it all depends on the style of wine uh, that the consumer likes. Because the consumer for Napa wine is quite conservative, it's those who kind of learned to drink back in the 1990s and still favour that style. So it was a balancing act for producers to follow to try and produce balanced, moderate wines that fit in with the international trends for more restrained wines, but still appealing to the traditional consumer. One question that producers do have to ask themselves in Napa is, what's the next generation of wine going to drink? Are they going to drink the big, full uh, Cabernet Sauvignons from Napa, or are they going to go for more quirky styles, more restrained styles, lower alcohol styles? So Napa Valley does have to look towards the future and what the future consumers are going to drink. And so there is some experimentation in Napa Valley. So, for example, Dan Petrosky of Larkmead, a very traditional producer, historic producer, their Cabernet Sauvignons are pretty big and pretty um, typical of Napa Valley, but he has uh, led plantings of experimental uh, grape varieties in Lark- in the Larkmead vineyard, which may adapt to climate change because it's going to get warmer and warmer. One view is that by 20 years' time, it will be too warm for Cabernet Sauvignons, so there needs to be a backup or an alternative, an experimentation with what is going to work in Napa in the future. And then there's another small producer, Steve Mathiason. He's actually a viticulturist. He works with a lot of wine make a lot of winemakers in Napa, uh, looking after the vineyard, including some pretty hefty Cabernet Sauvignons. But he has his own vineyard just outside the town of Napa, where he's um, plantings of Rabolajaya, also Scopatino, so um, grape varieties which originate from Fruli in Italy, which he's fascinated by, which of course produce very different styles of wine from Cabernet Sauvignon, and his Cabernet Sauvignon is much lighter bodied, uh, alcohol is about 13%, so there's a lot of different things going on in Napa experimentation. So it's important not to think of Napa Valley as being one, um, one thing. I'm going to explore the different AVAs of Napa Valley in this episode which all have their own personality and their own character. All the winemakers do, all the different producers, lots of different styles of wine being made and different grape varieties as well. And it's probably important that Napa Valley itself doesn't view itself as one thing, that it has lots of variety and lots of experimentation because it's going to be a challenging period. Uh, People are drinking lots of wine um, online or buying online and drinking at home. But the Napa model is really based around the tasting room, which has been extremely successful. It brings tourists to Napa. It's just a, a region which just gets bigger and bigger each year. But now um, going to Napa is like a ghost town because there are no tourists. And uh, so it's a very strange feeling when you're so used to a town being full of people visiting from all over the states and all over the world, and now no one's visiting and may not be doing so for quite a while. So that means the tasting rooms are all closed. And so Napa wineries are going to have to rethink their business model of drawing people to their winery and getting them to join the wine club that way and going um, more online, more virtual. So it's going to be interesting to see how Napa changes due to the current crisis or whether it goes back to normal or whether it's a bit of a combination where people still go to the tasting rooms but in lower numbers and there's much more things happening virtually. So we'll have to see. So some challenges for this famous iconic region with climate change and with the the coronavirus crisis about how it adapts and the great varieties it plants, how it attracts sales and what styles of wine it makes. So let's look at the climate of Napa Valley. It's a moderate Mediterranean climate, though it does get pretty hot in Napa, especially as you go up the valley, where it can hit 40 degrees during the summer. And one of the challenges of growing grapes in Napa Valley is heat spikes. 
So you can have uh, periods where it's maybe just three or four days where it gets really, really hot. So canopy management and anticipating those heat spikes are really important. But at night, it does cool down quite uh, dramatically, which of course is extremely important for growing grapes and producing um, balanced wines so maintaining the acidity and not getting too much sugar and too much fruit. And generally the, the climate pattern in Napa Valley is that it's uh, cooler at the bottom. So Napa Valley is cooled by San Pablo Bay, which separates uh, Napa from uh, San Francisco. And that brings in cooling breezes and cooling fog in the morning. And then that dissipates as you go further up the valley. So by the time you get to St. Helena, uh, that cooling influence isn't really felt. In fact, any wind that's blowing there can be quite hot. At the same time, um, in St. Helena, it cools down more at night uh, than it does down in Napa. So there's more of a temperature variation. So this changing uh, climate as you go through the valley um, is very important for the different styles of wine, for the different expressions of Napa. So even though Napa Valley is quite small, you do have a lot of diversity uh, in part due to that climate. In terms of rain, that all falls during the winter. And it's actually a lot wetter than might be thought because the annual rainfall in Napa Valley is roughly the same as Bordeaux. So annually Napa gets 931 millimeters of rain on average while Bordeaux gets 944 millimeters of rain on average so very similar. The big difference is that in September so getting towards harvest time Napa only gets 8 millimeters of rain on average while Bordeaux gets 84 millimeters of rain on average. So the rainfall in Napa is all during the winter and then the summers are extremely dry. And so I'm recording this in mid-May um, in Sonoma, so not too far away, and it's been raining here uh, the last couple of days, but this will probably be pretty much the last rain we see until November. So a long, dry, warm growing season, uh, perfect growing conditions for, for grapes. And so vintages here do vary from year to year according to the heat, according to when the rain stops around the around this time, uh, according to when the grapes actually uh, begin to uh, bud. But overall, the climate's pretty consistent from year to year, so growing grapes here is not too difficult. Very little uh, disease pressure, although viruses such as Pierce's disease uh, are more of an issue. Napa Valley is quite narrow. It's only about eight kilometers in width. Surrounded by uh, two mountain ranges, so the um, Mayacamas mountain range to the west, which separates Napa Valley from Sonoma and provides uh, protection from the coast, so it gets warmer in Napa Valley uh, because you don't have quite the same influence from the Pacific Ocean as you do in Sonoma. And then to the east are the Vaca Mountains, which separate uh, Napa from Central Valley, where it gets really hot. And driving from Napa over the Vaca Mountain ranges, the temperature just gets hotter and hotter quite noticeably. And then in length, Napa Valley is only about 50 kilometers. So a very small valley, very uh, contained, but lots of variation within that valley. So a very obvious difference is between fruit, which is grown on the valley floor, which has alluvial soils and be quite fertile, to those grown on the um, mountainsides, so either the Mayacamas or the Vaca Mountains, which are gonna be rockier, uh, more vol volcanic. And also that leads to uh, different aspects as well. So the Mayacama vineyards, which you find in AVAs like Mount Vida, receive the sunshine at a different point from those on the west-facing slopes of the Vaca Mountains. So for example, in uh, Howl Mountain or Atlas Peak, so very different ripening conditions according to where they re receive the sunshine. And of course, on the valley floor, there's more of a consistent sun going over them uh, during the day. 
So again, you have different soils, you have different climates and different aspects to sunshine. And that's why there are all these different AVAs, which produce subtly different styles of wine expressed most clearly in Cabernet Sauvignon. Cabernet Sauvignon is, of course, the most famous grape variety in Napa Valley, though it only accounts for about 40% of plantings. So it's a high amount, but maybe not as high as is sometimes supposed because Napa Valley and Cabernet Sauvignon are so strongly connected to each other. Other grape varieties planted in Napa Valley are the other Bordeaux varieties, particularly Merlot, but also Petit Verdot as well, and a little bit of Malbec. And Napa Valley originally was hugely influenced by uh, Bordeaux, so a lot of the um, Cabernet Sauvignon made in Napa Valley is going to be a blend of those Bordeaux varieties just like they do in Bordeaux. But whereas in Bordeaux it's by necessity because of the climate, in Napa is by choice. And so some producers may decide to um, produce 100% Cabernet Sauvignon. Others will use the Bordeaux varieties to create a Bordeaux blend. Although in, in California, you only need to use 75% for a wine of a grape variety uh, to be labeled um, that variety. So. I, Cabernet Sauvignon could be 75% Cabernet Sauvignon with all those Bordeaux grapes there as well. So the Cabernet Sauvignon of Napa Valley is quite full, it's quite rich, it's tannic, and those tannins are quite firm and, and dusty and dry. There's going to be a lot of fruit, but it should be balanced by high acidity. When these wines are young, they're quite tight and quite firm and very tannic, and so they do take at least five years to open up before drinking. I don't really like tasting young Napa Cabernet Sauvignon, but when it's at that five-year mark or more, the wines open up, the tannins become a bit softer, but they're still the voluptuous fruit as well, so very balanced and elegant and graceful. But these are certainly uh, fuller and richer than Bordeaux in comparison. Other grape varieties planted in Napa include the kind of the heritage grape varieties like uh, Zinfandel and Petite Syrah. Uh, these grape varieties work extremely well in Napa, but of course they're not as fashionable and they do not fetch the same prices as Cabernet Sauvignon, so there's not as much planted as maybe one would like. But as a fruitiness, a floral, perfumed character to these wines, and, and Zinfandel does work best when blended with Petite Syrah, in my opinion, because it just firms it up and gives it more of a tannic structure. There's also a little bit of Syrah planted in Napa Valley, which works well here. It's not a great variety which um, is particularly fashionable in the US, unfortunately, and Cabernet Sauvignon just kind of pushes it out of the way because the styles of wine are not dissimilar when the syrup can be really, really fruity, floral and perfumed, more so than Cabernet Sauvignon. But Cabernet Sauvignon is more of the choice for consumer, and other areas are experimenting with Syrah a little bit more, including in Sonoma. So a bit of a labour of love in Napa, but it does work very well. Then there's also um, Chardonnay, which is mainly planted in Carneros, which is the AVA which, which runs into Sonoma, so the most southerly part of Napa Valley, and therefore receives mo most of the cooling influence from San Pablo Bay. Chardonnay there is going to be quite full, rich, and voluptuous. Uh, and also in Carneros, there is Pinot Noir too, which again is going to be quite full. And just an example of how things have changed... In Napa, over the last 50 years, Carneros was first planted back in 1973. Some people thought it was too cool to uh, plant grape varieties there, that they just wouldn't grow, which is, seems bizarre to me. I drive through Carneros very regularly, and it gets very warm there during the day, and there's absolutely no problem in ripening Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. But of course, there's a much greater understanding now of which grape varieties uh, work, where, and how, 
And so the experimentation of the 1970s is a bit more solidified now. People know exactly what to do. And so they're actually looking for much cooler sites than Carneros to plant Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, for example, in Sonoma Coast. So again, lots of things changing as people learn about what works in California and what doesn't in general. And that's still true of Napa Valley itself. A quick overview of the AVAs, the 16 AVAs. So an AVA being an American viticultural area and the equivalent of an appellation in France, though far less stringent in the rules. It's really about the geography. Beyond that, uh, winemakers and grape growers can do pretty much what they like. But for it to be labelled from an AVA, 85% of the wine must be from that AVA. So south of Napa and around Napa are Carneros, Coombsville and Wild Horse Valley. So I've just mentioned Carneros and its relationship with San Pablo Bay and Chardonnay and Pinot Noir being planted there. Coombsville is the youngest AVA in Napa Valley and it's pretty much in Napa itself, just to the east of the town. And this is the coolest AVA for Cabernet Sauvignon. And so it's an AVA that's attracting more and more interest because it produces a, a cooler style of Cabernet Sauvignon in contrast to a warmer area like St. Helena. So these wines might be a little bit lower in alcohol, higher in acidity and a less, less um, full-on, but still very typical of Napa Valley, very recognisably Napa Valley. Now Wild Horse Valley is a pretty unusual AVA, actually one pretty much created for one producer, Dave Mahaffey of Olivia Brion, and he has a vineyard there which produces Pinot Noir, which is quite uh, full and fruity. It's interesting to try his wine alongside his former winemaker John Lockwood of Enfield Wines, which um, is a really good producer. His Pinot is a little um, a little tighter, a little more restrained, so an example of uh, two producers producing different styles of wine. Uh, but Wild Horse Valley is to the east of Napa, uh, just going into the, uh, the Vaca mountain range. Then as we go north from Napa, there's Oak Knoll and Yontville. Oak Knoll and AVA created pretty much by one producer again, uh, Trevethan. And one which uh, gets a little unfairly treated. The wines here uh, are really good, more elegant, more restrained, slightly less fruity because uh, it's just north of Napa and actually runs into Napa itself. But some producers choose not to use Oak Knoll on their label because it doesn't really, it's not really a selling point, which I think is a little unfair. One good producer based here is Ida Valen, who are in Napa on um, Tranca Street. Um, that's a collaboration between Larry Hyde, who's a Carneros a grower, uh, really, really good, and um, Aubert de Valen of Domaine de la Romane Conte. And they produce fabulous Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, and Syrah. Then going up into Yontville, this is really where um, the food scene of Napa is based. So you get restaurants like French Laundry and Bouchon. Again, maybe not an AVA which has the power of the AVAs directly north to it, both in reputation and in style. And the AVAs directly north to Yontville are Oakville, Stasleep and Rutherford. And this is where you're going to find the most famous, the most prestigious producers, producing the most typical and characteristic of Napa wines. Wines which are powerful, tannic, concentrated. Andre Shelichev coined the term Rutherford dust as a marketing term, and it's a very good one, but it could apply to all three of these AVAs, really. Those really dusty, dry character to them. And then going directly north again, the St. Helena, and then the most, north, most northerly AVA is Calistoga. And these two are the hottest AVAs. You're really getting really hot days, temperatures really rising, but then the cooler nights as well. And Calistoga does have a bit of a cooling influence coming in from the Pacific Ocean, just going round the top of the Mayacamas mountain range. And so these wines are going to be really full and fruity and rich and dense and uh, tannic. And Calistoga is 
probably the AVA wears Infantel and Petite Sira work best because they like those warm conditions. There are also the mountainside AVAs as well, which produce quite different wines. Uh, I think their tannin, the nature of their tannins is different, a bit firmer, a little greener as well, more herbaceous aromas coming from the Cabernet Sauvignon grown in the mountainsides. And as I mentioned, the relationship with the sun is different, so they can really get hot sunshine on them, but only at particular points of the day, rather than a consistent heat um, on the valley floor. So different styles of wine. So in the Mayakamas mountain range, you have Diamond Mountain to the north, going down to Spring Mountain, and then going down to Mount Vida. While on the eastern side of the valley in Vaca mountain range, there's Hell Mountain and Atlas Peak. These are all mountainside um, AVAs, but going into properly into the Vaca mountain range at higher altitude is Childs Valley, and there's also Pope Valley, which isn't an AVA, but there's still uh, some producers um, based here. And these are good value AVAs because they're not as uh, well known or as fashionable, and so some producers are looking towards Charles Valley and Pope Valley uh, for their fruit and planting there as well. And it's quite a large area. That's one of the few areas open for expansion in Napa because everything else is so densely planted. And the only way you can um, make wine from any of the AVAs I've mentioned before is by buying a winery or buying fruit if you're not already established there. So that's Napa Valley, very uh, complex region despite being so small with all these different AVAs and different grape varieties, not just Cabernet Sauvignon. The wines are expensive and I think too expensive and I don't know how long that is sustainable. Maybe that will try change with the current coronavirus crisis. These wines, can, some of the most expensive wines can cost a thousand dollars, but they are uh, fabulously age worthy and there are plenty of collectors in the US and elsewhere well willing to uh, pay for them. So we'll see how the future of Napa Valley pans out, with climate change clearly being an issue. And I think the most um, forward-thinking producers will be the ones that benefit the most. So let's see what happens next. It's been an exciting 50 years for Napa Valley, and we're going into a, a new future. So I'm Matthew, thank you for listening, and this has been Matthew's World of Wine and Drink.